0: What's going on? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bukari Sellers podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing my sister and friend and host of the readout, Joy Ann Reed. But before we get to Joy, we've got to talk about this Dante Wright case. As you may now know, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota officer Kim Potter has been charged with second degree manslaughter. Under Minnesota law, second degree manslaughter applies when there's someone who has created a quote, unreasonable risk. That person kills someone through their own negligence. The maximum punishment in this case would be 10 years in prison, though notably, sentencing guidelines call for about four years for someone with no criminal history like Officer Potter. So what does this mean in plain language? Well, this means that uh, the prosecutors believe that the accident narrative sticks, and it's one they believe can stick before a jury. Now, I imagine some folks want to know why no murder charge was made, and the reason why, no, why there is no murder charge is because it requires a premeditation or a depraved mind that demonstrates a total disregard for human life. That's what we have with Derek Shoem. In this case, though, what we have is a fucked-up, split-second decision that falls squarely into manslaughter, which is what you use when a death is caused by someone's negligence, which in this case is the negligence associated with apparently thinking your gun was a taser. Now, look. I know many of y'all think it's bullshit, but you charge what can stick and what you can get a guilty verdict on. And even then, we've got to get a jury, largely made up of white folk, to not give a police officer who says something was an accident the benefit of the doubt. Now, if I'm being honest, my suggestion here is to keep expectations low and play that the family has a good lawyer for the civil suit. Shout out to Ben Crump and they get paid because the likelihood that Officer Potter will actually go to jail, even on manslaughter, is slim to none. So what can we do? We need to change state law so that the officer potters of the world financially feel the consequences of their actions. Police need to carry insurance, just like I do as a lawyer. And the state of Minnesota needs to eliminate any qualified immunity that would prevent this kind of accountability from happening. Because maybe, just maybe, if you think your pension is on the line or that your insurance premiums will go up if you make a bad decision, you'll know the difference between a taser and a gun. And that's that on that. Now on... To our show with my good friend Joanne Reed.
1: Hey, welcome to IKEA. Where even this desk is circular.
0: Huh? How so? Looks pretty rectangular
1: to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products. Like buying back your IKEA items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future.
0: Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Today on the Bakari Sellers podcast, I have the privilege of having one of my heroes. I don't even know if she knows that, but she carries the banner for so many of us day in and day out. It used to be week in and week out. Now it's day in and day out. <laughs> what happens when you persist, Joy Ann Reed? What's going on? How are you?
1: I- I'm good. Now you're going to make me cry. Now I'm going to start calling you nephew. Look what you done done. Oh, man. So done lo- let, did. <laughs> let me
0: ask you this. Let me ask you this kind of before we get into the more of the substance. The other night, and I don't know if people... Valued it as much as as I did. But the other night, you had the opportunity to interview Don Lemon. And, you know, I remind folk often when I'm talking about race and the structure of race in media, I say, you know, we only had two. Now, three- Black primetime news host. That's Lester Hope, yourself and Don Lemon. Talk about that moment where you and Don were able to, I looked up, I was like, damn, I turned to BET by accident. I didn't know. (laughs) We
1: we try to every so often turn the readout into
0: BET, but yeah, no,
1: you know what? So we got this window of opportunity because Don wrote this really terrific book. um, Oh, this is the fire, which by the way, he is a fantastic writer. I'm a sucker for a great writer. uh, And he is a fan, as good a writer as he is a journalist. So because he wrote the book, he was able to get the little blight where he could go on MSNBC to promote the I've, book.
0: I've, I've used that. I've used that loophole before. <laughs> got to use
1: the loophole every so often you got to do it. And so um, we, you know, I didn't think they'd say yes. Honestly, I was like, we should put Don Lemon on. And I thought that they would, that CNN would say, absolutely not. But somehow you know, through the magic of his relationship with his management, uh, he got on the show. And, you know, first of all, the intro, I totally messed up because I was so nervous. Don is a friend of mine. OK, <laughs> I, I actually have, I met him. I still remember meeting Don Lemon in 2012 at the National Action Network um, conference. And I had admired Don. Don's one of my uh, idols in the business. But I got to meet him because David Wilson, my boss at the time at the Grio, was like, oh, let me just introduce you. And Don was so cool and so nice. And now we've become friends. Um, but I was so nervous interviewing him because I was like, I can't mess up an interview with Dot Lemon. Like that would just be the end of my career. So of course I flubbed the whole intro, which I had edited. So these are the words <laughs> I had edited because I edit all my scripts and I either write or edit my scripts. So I'm like, I knew I knew exactly what I was supposed to say. Flubbed it, messed it up. But then I, I got to talk to him. But you know, it meant a lot to me because we are so few in number. Yes, I, I felt the same way when I first met Lester in person. There's so few of us that we we all we catch eyes. You know, we see each other in the hallways and we know we're like, it's you and me, bro. I know. <laughs> a lot of us <laughs> out here. And you know, too, because you do this cable news thing yourself, Bakari. We're and it's so not a lot. Yes. We all got to be friends.
0: I tell folk all the time that you can't afford to have a bad day because especially, particularly for black men, the way that white folk in particular see black men is through the lens and prism of you on TV. So you can't. Be angry, you can't, and it's hard sometimes. And I, I, you know, Angela and I talk about that often. But I you know, know you so feel.
1: I, one of the things I admire about Don is Don does get angry on TV, and he he, he has broken through that. He has decided that he is in a place in his career. But what are they going to do? They are going to fire the one black guy on CNN? He's <laughs> and, he's like, he's a, <laughs> and he's good,
0: and he's good.
1: Good numbers. He gets good ratings. People, you know, he has viral moments that are always on social media, and I love the fact that he is owning. He's like, I'm gonna be myself, you know. At this stage in my career, I'm gonna say what I'm gonna say. If it makes people mad, too bad. He's just being himself, and and it's the best don ever.
0: Well, definitely, and thank well, thank you both because you guys carry a banner, and you just got to be listening to hit them up before you go out there for, <laughs> for what y'all be doing. Look, I, you know, when we start, we always want to walk our guests through the arc of your career, and yours has been a varied one in media, where you've done television, print, digital. And radio. Talk about those stops from WSVN Channel Seven in Miami to doing radio to your stint with the Miami Herald. How did those things prepare you for what you're doing now with the readout?
1: Well, I always like to tell people I started my career at Fox because WSVN was a Fox affiliate, uh, making seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour as a morning show news writer. And I got the job because it was sort of a a crime of opportunity, right? Um, I I was pregnant and already had a toddler. We were newly married. My husband and I, we'd moved to Florida and i had had, you know, the typical kind of post Harvard job in like management consulting didn't like it. Didn't really, that's not what I wanted to do, but it was like a, an in-between job. It sounds like moved-
0: everybody from Harvard. I know.
1: Everyone. What do you
0: what do you do? I graduated from Harvard. Consult. I don't even know what that means. Nobody
1: (laughs) even knows what it Mine is in the beverage industry, so I can tell you everything about Coca-Cola, everything about beverages. It's coming handy now with the boycotts (laughs) and stuff, but I know everything about sodas. But so, yeah, I was like a beverage industry analyst, you know, marketing analyst. This is not what I wanted to do. But when I moved to Florida, my Spanish is good, but not good enough to get a job. So I had to figure out a job, you know, because we were a, a young family with a baby on the way and a, and a little toddler and we needed two incomes. And so I just started writing to TV stations because I figured I'm going to do what I have always loved, but I'm not trained to do. I don't have a journalism degree, but I was like, I'm going to take a chance and see if one of these stations will hire me. WSBN hired me and I would write the morning show. I had to be at work at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. to write a show that started at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an adventure, you know, and so I went from there to NBC, the NBC affiliate, literally because it was closer to my house. And the kids were small. You have little kids, so you know you do a lot to move I'm your life. I'm you tired right did. now.
0: I mean, listen, no. we tape, we tape and do nap time. That's the only. <laughs> that's the best I can do.
1: <laughs> well, somehow you managed to have your kids have their own Instagram show, which I don't know how you have time for that, but
0: you you, they, you My wife die. wanted them to have an Instagram, so they got one. So it, got, it's the cutest it's thing. I go, I go there to get joy some days.
1: Oh, so oh listen, I love the fact that I follow you and I follow the twins because they, they make my life better. <laughs> my kids are big now, so I miss having a baby that's little. So you you got the, the babies that I can like at least experience <laughs> that. But, so we moved to be closer to them because they were little at the time. But it was, you know, it was a great opportunity.
0: So, look, you have a phrase that I want to dig into just briefly, because you've talked at length at various points in your career about the quote, the burden to do right in your journalism. What does that mean? And how does that inform your orientation as a journalist, especially how you approach your role now as host?
1: You know, the way I think about it is after I had done, you know, news and dropped out in news because I was, you know, too political and I wanted to, you know, work on politics and try to get rid of George W. Bush. And then from there ended up in radio, because I just keep trying to figure out well, what, what is the voice that I want to have through all of that, writing columns and being on the radio and doing all these various different kinds of media. What I found out is even when I thought of myself as being a, a, you know, just a small time sort of media figure for some person out there, what you say really matters and you're speaking for them, you know, and one of my bosses in radio always told me this, never forget that what you're saying, you're speaking for somebody. And if what you turns out not to be true, it can be crushing to that one person. Or if what you're saying winds up harming their community, that can really hurt that person. And I'll never forget being at the Griot, which was at the time, it's grown now, over there now, eating a a lady with her like, and the 12 year old said, you're from the Griot because I've seen you on TV. And the girl started welling up, her little eyes started, and I was like, this i'm just me like i am literally nobody important i don't know why this person is becoming so um, emotional but she was a brown skin little dark Mm. skinned black girl and she just loved the fact that there was somebody who looked like her that she could see on tv and read online and that just made her so happy so i feel like i think of that little girl that i need to make sure that she's proud of what i'm doing that i'm speaking for her that i'm emulating, you know, the things that, that matter to her, that I'm, that I'm putting out there, the energy she wants and needs yes. in the world. Yes. Cause I feel like if I don't do it, it's not like there are a hundred of us. I wish there were a <laughs> thousand or <laughs> millions of us out there.
0: <laughs> take there a little h- pressure, take a little pressure off, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the moment we're in now. Now I want to frame the discussion because I have some questions here. I had to prepare. I wanted <laughs> to make sure I was prepared for Joy and Reed, but I, I was doing some thinking about Black trauma in the in the moment we're in, and it made me think about Dante's aunt just recently. And Dante Wright's aunt, yeah. um, and she remarked that George Floyd's girlfriend was Dante's teacher, which put me in the mind frame of Fred Hampton's mom babysitting Emmett Till which put me in the mind frame of our lieutenant in Virginia being cousins and calling uncle Eric Gardner. I mean, when you think about that cycle of trauma and how it's like, you know, one degree of separation and you're looking at where we are, just describe your feelings and emotions when you're covering, in particular, this Dante Wright situation Mm -hmm. coupled with this Chauvin trial.
1: It is. You know, the interconnectedness of us as Black people, right? Even if we don't personally know each other, all of our stories are interconnected. All of our experiences are, are interconnected. I'll never forget talking to the late Vernon Jordan, who it just somehow didn't occur to me, given his age, I and mean, he was so urbane and interesting, it always <laughs> seemed young to me. Um, but that he was, you know, he was Megar Evers's age, and he was also one of his best friends. Correct. And he told me about. Talking to him and about Medgar's pain and depression sometimes because, you know, Vernon was in Georgia where they were making some progress. Megger was in Mississippi where it was like the heart of darkness and the terrorism was so extreme and the progress was so slow. It was the lowest rate of voter registration in the country. And he felt like a failure sometimes mm-hmm. because he and, and, you know, Vernon talked about saying to him, you know. You are saving the world, like you are doing the work. But yeah, I mean, I feel like we all know these 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 figures. You know, we all know someone like Eric Garner. You know, that's that brother on the corner. We all, yeah. you know, we all know a George Floyd. That's the, you know, the happy-go-lucky guy in the store. Yeah. We feel like we know him, even if we don't know him. And it hurts when they are killed. Each one of these deaths is personally painful, I think, to every Black person in America. And if we're covering it. We're supposed to cover it through that pain, but this—they each one hurts. I, you know, I still—Tamir Rice gave me nightmares, and I still can't look at him. He's the one face that I really have a hard time looking at.
0: And it's because of his age. He looks like my sons. Yes,
1: yes. He looks like my kids. I mean, Trayvon was literally my son's age. I have two sons that are around his age, and I remember them asking me, you know, my youngest one was like, "Well, why can people just kill us?" how am I supposed to answer that question? Because <laughs> theoretically they can't.
0: But I'm not they, built for that either. I'd just be sitting there crying with my son.
1: <laughs> it was a lot of tears. Trayvon was hard. I can remember a good, you know, my best girlfriend's mom passed, and going to the repass. And across the room was Sabrina. Because again, small world, South mm-hmm. Florida, they knew each other through church connections. And, just trying to have a normal conversation with her when I felt so guilty that I still have my sons, you know, it's hard.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I can, and now having a two year old son that I look at this really weird reflection of myself in, I've just been hugging him a lot recently since uh, Dante's death. You know, how do you approach this when you hear narratives like accidental shooting um, in this Dante Wright case where we know, you are, you know, and I know, and it's probably because we have this really weird, wonky way of looking at life that, wait a minute, you know, we immediately go back, wait a minute, this happened, I believe, in Fruitvale Station in 2009. They're, I don't know much, but I do know that they're supposed to be on opposite sides. One is yellow, one is black, one is eight ounces, one is three pounds. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you approach this narrative? Because, you know, you just hear propaganda. I mean, they just, like the... Uh, Mainstream media, I won't call names, but like the New York Times or whatever, just just post <laughs> they'll just post like accidental shooting. Like, no, that's what the cops say that it, that effectively is propaganda. How do you approach a job and give viewers that honest, refreshing reality of what what it is or what it could be or what it should be or, or what what they see?
1: Yeah, no, I am a very big stickler with, you know, what we say on the readout. Right. Um, and one of the things that I have personally banned is the term police involved shooting.
0: I hate that term. Like the bullet, right? like, like how did a bullet get there? <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> how, how was the officer involved?
1: In what way was he involved? Was he nearby?
0: <laughs> you see, I know <laughs> exactly. Location?
1: Was he in the yeah. vicinity? <laughs> what do you mean a police? It, that is a because, you know, when we, what we found out, um, particularly in the Tamir Rice case uh, in, is one I'll give an example. Walter Scott is actually worse. Let me do Walter Scott. Mm-hmm. So, in the Walter Scott case, I teach this case in my class every time I teach a class, a journalism class, I'm teaching out Howard, and I always teach this case to young journalists because it shows you what's wrong fundamentally with the media. The media is used to genuflecting toward power and, and absolving power, if at all possible, because the powerful are our sources, Very and that's fair. a bad thing, right? You know, Watergate was not uncovered because powerful people in Washington were the sources, because somebody sneaked. And gave out the information. If you just went to the official channels, you wouldn't have never you would have never got Watergate because official channels weren't going to tell you that.
0: Correct. Correct. But
1: we in the media rely so much on statement from police police and the word says versus claim. Right. So in the Walter Scott case, police put out a statement saying that Walter Scott fled from police after Correct. fighting the officer for his taser. And in the attempt to fight uh, with the officer for the taser, the he was shot. He was shot in in, in terms of the way that the police said he was shot because he was fighting an officer for his taser. Later on, the video comes out when a very brave person videotaped it that, no, he had run from the officer. The officer squared up, shot him in the back and then tried to drop the taser on him, Mm -hmm. planted on him. Mm -hmm. And police and, and every single media outlet got it wrong, local and national. All of them got it wrong. And they would have never questioned the police account. They would have just never questioned it. They would have gone with that story. Had there not been that video evidence, but we're supposed to be interrogating power, not reading their press releases and reading their statements. And police involved shooting is something police want us to say, because it takes away the sting of police killing somebody. Mm -hmm. I rather police killing police shot this person, police killed this person, alleged, you know, a, a, a potential murder case, something that's more specific. I think we should do. I think we do a bad, we do a, a disservice to the public when we use these euphemisms to give powerful people a pass.
0: And you know what I always think about that, Walter Scott, there's something that's been bothering me that one day I want somebody to tell me, but the black guy who was working with uh, Michael Schlegler that time who signed off on the incident report and knew it was false. Yes. You know these I, I remind folks Austin, this isn't this is a system that we're talking about. We're not talking right. about a lone individual. Talk about the Chauvin trial really quickly before we talk policy and politics. Yeah, I think the prosecution has done a phenomenal job here, uh, establishing the cause of death, eliminating the defense's theory that George floyd died of 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 uh, had a cardiac event because of drugs. They've humanized him. What's been your assessment so far of the prosecution's case? And I, I dare not ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because y'all mm-hmm. ask me these questions all the time. <laughs> questions you'd be like, I don't know the answer to that. But <laughs> uh, what's your read on where you think the jury will ultimately go?
1: Yeah, well, I, I'll start by saying, you know, because I used to do radio, you get a lot of police sources, right? So I know a lot of cops So my godbrother <laughs> is a retired NYPD
0: um, sergeant. And that's um, what I tell folks. I'm like, black, every black person I know got a cop in their family. Every like, we're, single <laughs> All yeah. of us
1: got cops. Yes. in their family. So we know police. We know them. We know them well, yeah. Very well. We relate <laughs> to them and everything. Um, and if you ever, and you, as you know, if you ever done radio, you know, they love to gossip. Cops be calling on the, the, the warm line. Listen, I can't go on the air, but let me, they, they sit in a car all day, you know. <laughs> so what they got to do, but listen to the radio and call in. So I, you, you get a lot of sources that way. But I never believe police are going to be convicted. I don't trick myself into thinking they're going to get convicted. I mean, Walter George Zimmer was just playing like he was a cop, and he got off. You know what I mean, he just was a fake cop, and he got off. People don't convict police of of murder. Walter Scott's a great example. That jury hung. Locally, the only reason that you know, Schlager's in prison is because the feds got him.
0: Correct.
1: The feds had to come for him because the the tr- the local jury trial heard all the evidence, which sounds like a slam dunk. There's also video, and the jury hung. You only need Correct. one. Pro cop, ardently pro cop juror on that jury. To one one
0: person to say, you know, if he wouldn't have resisted or That's one right. or one person to say, y'all don't know how difficult a cop's job is. Yep. And you end up in that situation. I mean, that that is we're always we're always just one person away. One person away.
1: Well, I mean, but I will say the prosecution has done a masterful job. Yeah. They are as good as O.J.'s defense was good. You know what I mean? It's the flip of the O.J. case. This was this has been a almost perfect prosecution. I've never seen a stronger case against co- a, a police officer, and I've never seen so many police officers testify. That's what him. I was going
0: to say. They they picked up Chauvin by the pants and threw him over the, over the blue wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you're not on this side no more.
1: No. Nope. I mean, literally— 10 police officers have testified against him. That is amazing. The most senior police officer on the force, Officer Zimmerman, the police chief, that's very unusual. And the only other case recently that I can think of where police testified against police was the Mohamed Noor case. And Mohamed Noor, the black officer who shot a white um, tourist from Australia, he was convicted of third degree murder. And he's appealing his sentence right now. Black cop shot a white lady. So that's a little bit different kind of case. Um, So I would guess right now that, Chauvin is not going to walk because there are about four black people on that jury. I, I can't think of four of, of, a, you know, a jury that's that mixed racially mixed that would acquit unless I don't know, you know, there could be four Clarence Thomas's on that I, jury.
0: I don't I know. Don't, I mean, the jury, the jury can be eight, four hung back there. I, I that it, it could be, you Correct. Know,
1: we, it could be. We a hung. Know. So I think it's either a hung jury or he gets third degree. He gets either second a or compromise. third degree.
0: Yeah. It'll in be a, a compromise a, yeah, or, yeah,
1: yeah, or, or yeah. a hung jury.
0: So uh, how do you think, and I, I've been, I was disappointed with my, with my friend Joe Biden's kind of response and the, this, what do they call it? The spray, the, the press yeah. spray or whatever. Yeah. I'll be getting a text message about that disappointment <laughs> after this show airs. I know, <laughs> but how do you think the Chauvin trial and the Dante Wright shooting affect the conversation around policing in Washington?
1: I, you know, Biden did not surprise me what he said. I have to say, you know, I, I, and also I, I
0: didn't I want surprise either. I was just disappointed. Yeah.
1: yeah. Because you know what? When you say the term working class, people think you mean poor people, but you don't. You mean cops. Working class is cops, you know, working class is plumbers. Working class is yeah. people who may actually have a lot of money. They they're maybe pretty affluent and have a second home and go on yeah. vacations every year. They just didn't go to college necessarily. You don't have to go to college to get the job, even though some cops did do college. So Biden has always got one eye on working class people, and that includes black working class. Because again, why do we so many black people know right. cops? Because it's a working class job with a pension. It's one of the few, you know, West Indian people, it's like you're gonna be a teacher, you're gonna be a cop, you're gonna be a teacher, you're gonna be a police, you're gonna be a nurse. You know, something <laughs> where you can get like a, a pension with a union, good job, right? So there's a lot of West Indian cops, <laughs> you know. So um I think he's always got one eye on that working class vote. So I think that's why he said what he said. But I do think that the George Floyd, something about that killing has changed something about America more weirdly enough than like mass shootings of children have. You know, there's something about that nine minute snuff film that has shaken Americans in a weird way. So. I think it's more likely now that we'll get some sort of reform at the federal level, but you know, there's also we need ten Republicans because it looked like you know Prince Joe Manchin, the Prince. Abil- oh my
0: God! You didn't vote for Joe Biden just to pass a, a Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, you know, palatable <laughs> platform. That's what I want. I, when I voted, right. I voted early. When I voted, I was like, I'm voting for Joe Biden, but I want him to do the everything Joe Manchin <laughs> wants him to.
1: Yeah, do. make it as weak as possible. It's like one teabag tea. Bag tea.
0: Like I hate pink. that. Y'all, they don't. That's like that's like that sweet tea they make up north or whatever they do. Anyway. Yeah, when they
1: say it, they say, "Would you like a sweet tea?" and they give it to you, and you are like, that's
0: not "What is it? What is this? Is this is this Lip- <laughs> Lipton? What?
1: It's two bags of Lipton.
0: <laughs> what is this? And
1: Lipton's not even tea, by the way. Tea that's dirty water.
0: There you go. Your beverage. Your Harvard degree doing good work right there. What do you What do you think ultimately happens to the filibuster in Congress?
1: I don't know because. It didn't rate. Okay, so now you now, now you give me a headache because this filibuster thing it drives me so crazy. They are clinging, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin and them clinging to this old Jim Crow bullshit rule that is not in the Constitution and that was really literally just used against us. Correct. And <laughs> I cannot understand why Chuck Schumer does not square up Joe Manchin and say, "Do you want to be reelected?" Or do you want Jim Justice, who is a billionaire, to have your seat? Because I will stand down if you don't shut the hell up and vote to get rid of the filibuster and do what I say. I need Nancy Pelosi to run the Senate because you can't let him do your job. The, 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 the majority leader is named Charles Schumer, not Joe Manchin.
0: Well, you Put him in his place. You can't tell. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk about the Republicans for a bit, particularly this growing divide that appears to be emerging between corporate America and the GOP. What Mitch McConnell has called woke capitalism. Uh I'm going to get that on a T-shirt. I kind of like that. (laughs) The The insurrection Donald Trump and now these states voting rights. Uh, These anti-trans rights bills are forcing corporate America's hand on whether they stick with the GOP or cut bait. What do you make of what appears to be a very real split between corporate America? Shout out Ken Chenault and and the GOP.
1: I love it. This is this is why integration worked. Right. Because after the civil rights movement, your dad was a part of it. You know all about this a lot of these corporations really quick, fast were like, give me all the smart black people I can hire and put them somewhere in my company. Right. There was this sort of hiring speed to try to, you know, create more. started hiring black people in in management. They're like, we'll hire like a a person that'll be the community liaison and make them black or, you know, Coca-Cola was like, we'll find some blacks and put them on the board. And, you know, it was, and so what's happened now is that there's enough momentum and enough black consumer momentum Where these companies realize it's really bad for business when the tastemakers, ergo black people, turn on you, you are turned on and you are done. And so as younger and younger people are more and more diverse, you know, five year olds are already your kids already live in a majority non-white generation.
0: Correct. So, and they and they've seen everything. I remind folks, this generation is unique because they all grow up with somebody who's gay. They all grow yep. up with somebody who's Muslim. They all grow up with somebody who is an immigrant. They all grow, I mean, they they grow up with without these preconceived notions because it's it's not uncommon or new to them.
1: Correct. The reason that you can fight about trans kids playing high school sports is because there are openly trans kids now.
0: <laughs> yeah. When I was
1: growing up, it didn't have that. And I'm sure there Correct. were trans kids. They they weren't out there. You didn't see them. So this generation is growing up knowing trans kids, knowing, as you said, LGBT folks, knowing people of other races. It's just a different world. And all businesses want to do is sell. And they want young customers. There's a reason the demo is 25 to 49. And they would love it to really be 18 to 30 because they really want to sell to young people who have more money in their hands. These businesses cannot grow based on 80-year-old Fox News viewers. That's not the future. So if they want to survive, they have to cater to the wokeness of young people and they're doing it. And thank God.
0: Well, I just want to say thank you so much for taking some time out of your day and spending 30 minutes with us on the Bukari Sellers podcast. You are busy. You are one of my heroes. We keep my, my mom always calls me and she's like, did you see... Did you see Joy Reed last night? I'm like, nah, my wrong channel. I was, I was, I was on. I was. What are you talking about? So, oh, yes. <laughs>
1: well, well, listen, I, we're gonna put you on for your next book because you were, we were, you were on my podcast for your book, but we're gonna sneak you on to the. We I just will. sneak people over from CNN every so often. Just yeah, no, I, know.
0: I love. You know, the our word.
1: folks watch both channels. They flip oh, trust me, they do. Forth.
0: They they do flip back and forth. I can't they remember do. which one I saw you mm-hmm. on, but you you were good. So oh,
1: I have so many people come up through the street and say, I love you on CNN. Now, you know, <laughs> I see you on the CNN and I'm like, oh, yes, ma'am, especially if yes, it's an old yes. lady. I'll be like, yes,
0: thank, yes, thank you for watch- job security. Thank, thank you. you. ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> All right, be blessed. Kiss the babies thank and you. your husband and everybody for me. Have a great day.
1: All right, same to you. All right, Take bye-bye. care. Bye.
0: Before I let you go, this is a personal shout out for me. I have to shout out my friends in the Atlanta University Center. And shout out to Clark Atlanta. I'll be speaking at your Uh, Class of 2021 graduation. But one of our own, Morris Brown College, is back on the path to accreditation. In case you missed it this week, it was announced that Morris Brown College is on track to be a candidate for accreditation. If approved, this would allow Morris Brown to accept federal financial aid, which is the holy grail for colleges and universities, because the overwhelming majority of American college students accept federal financial aid. So that means they can rebuild enrollment. This is all 20 years after originally losing their accreditation, losing their ability to accept federal financial aid and watching their enrollment plummet. Why does this matter? Because Morris Brown is the only historically black college started by black people. And it's part of the Atlanta University Center on the AUC, the largest consortium of black colleges and universities in the country, with Morehouse College, Spelman College, Clark Atlanta University, and the Interdenominational Theological Center. And now Morris Brown will be joining the AUC, and the AUC will be back at full strength. And that's good for Black America, that's good for Atlanta, and that's good for the country, because no place in the country produces more Black talent than the AUC, and no place in the AUC was made by and for us quite like Morris Brown. So welcome back, Morris Brown. And that's that on that. We'll see you guys, and be safe and hug your kids. We'll see you guys on Monday. Yeah.